Welcome to Business Book Talk, the best place to discover great business books. Bob Garlick has talked to over 400 authors, and his questions and comments always get you the best information about the book, the author, and the ideas behind each book. So let's see who Bob's talking to this week. Hey everybody, it's Bob here, and I've got The Etiquette Edge, Modern Manners for Business Success, and I've got Beverly Langford with me today. And Beverly, this is the second edition of this book. Correct. So how long has the book been out for? Well, the first edition came out in 2005. Uh, This edition came out in August of this year, so it's brand new. Well, I just want to ask you, do you think that the world has changed since 2005 um, a lot as far as etiquette's concerned? Well, the the main reason I felt that I needed to update the book, and the answer is yes, we're we're changing at warp speed. (laughs) But but, uh, the first book came out right before, I'd say a couple of three years before the advent of the iPhone and the explosion of social media and all the interesting situations that creates. And 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 phones are when when I wrote the first book the cell phone was something that you you and some people even kept them in their car or you kept it uh, when you were out you still had a landline when you were at your home and 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 now it's it controls our lives in a lot of cases. We use it for everything, far more than just being a phone. And I felt like that a lot of communication issues have grown out of these technology developments that that we needed to explore and put in some sort of context as far as what is courteous and appropriate behavior. Well, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, email, it's it's difficult to do uh, translate email based on the mood that person's trying to get across. And it's even harder with texts and things like Twitter and Facebook. Again, it's like, what is this person talking about? Um, how how does somebody um, deal with this this all these different varieties of communication because they all have slightly different eti- um, etiquette rules and regulations to them? That's right. One of the things, though, to keep in mind is that uh, you, as a communicator, and really even this book, even though the book's called The Etiquette Edge and it's about appropriate behavior, it's also about about communicating, which is, is what so much of, of what it deals with. And, and you really have to figure out what is the appropriate medium for a particular message. If it's, uh, if it's just, I'm going to be there in 15 minutes, then text is fine. But I'm going to have to let you go because our company's not making any money is not an appropriate <laughs> message for a text or an email or anything of that sort. So you really think about, uh, w- first of all, the, the, the content of the message and does it fit that medium and also the preferences of the person on the other end. Some people might prefer an email to a text. Other people might want you to pick up the phone and and talk to them. So all of that has to do with the way that we increase the impact of our communication with our fellow human beings. Mm. Do you think to be great at etiquette, you have to be more of an aware person, you have to be in the moment and, and be more conscious of what's going on around you? 
You absolutely do. The context a lot of times will tell you more than than just somebody's words. And you know, there's the, there's this this uh, ability known as social awareness that enables you just to get a feel for what's happening. You can read between the lines, so to speak. You know, people who can walk into a room and they can instantly take the social temperature of that room. They just know who's who's doing what and who if it's tense if it's friendly if it's if the people know each other and they know how to respond and other people can walk into that same room and be t- just completely clueless yeah. it, you know it 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 just it passes by them and that uh, ability to read the moment i like your term there uh, is is uh, is so important in knowing how to respond appropriately well, you know, when you run into a person like that, that is basically embarrassing themselves or destroying their personal brand in a room full of people, um, is it good adequate to go up to them and say, hey, dude, um, do you want a couple of tips so you don't embarrass yourself? Or is that just being too upfront and personal with somebody you might not personally know? Because in in, in a, let me frame that a little bit, because in a, in a regular situation, that would sound insane. But in a in a networking meeting where everybody's trying to share and get to know each other, would you be able to do it in that situation? I think that it really depends on on the relationship. And you're suggesting that maybe there's not a relationship there. Uh, if it's networking and you know that people are are looking for opportunities to find work or whatever, then you might take that person aside and and gently, I hope, say, I just noticed something that caused me a little bit of concern and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, Usually, if you're giving feedback to people, if you will use I phrases rather than you phrases, rather than instead of, you really blew it with Mr. Brown, (laughs) rather than starting that way, uh, to say, I just noticed something and I was aware of his reaction, and I just thought I would pass that on to you. Something like that might work. It might just make someone furious, and, and he or she wouldn't want to hear your advice, but you, could, you, you at least tried to make things better for that person. Yeah, and that's you know part of being uh, an, uh, a giving human being and, and being conscious. Etiquette is all part of that package, and not to be afraid of trying to help. Exactly. And and I'm glad you said etiquette is a part of that package because unfortunately a lot of people when they hear the word etiquette, they immediately think of a bunch of stodgy, prissy rules that mm-hmm. really don't mean anything and you just have to follow them because somebody said you should. Uh, the, the word etiquette comes from a, a, an old French word which meant ticket or billet. And it actually was a voucher. It was something that said that you were a trustworthy and appropriate person uh, that was often given to members of the army so they could find a place to, to stay at night. And and so it really is, it's more about just knowing how to handle each situation. And if you know some of these rules, the neat thing is then you don't have to think about them. And you can be, as you said, in the moment and and uh, the, the it's become second nature to you to do the things you need to do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if, if you're uh, constantly uh, doing, well, if, what, what's the plural for etiquette anyways? And you wouldn't say educated, it would be etiquette what, what, what would I'm, I'm not sure. You know? I, I think it's just, etiquette is just usually this umbrella word that means all kinds of things. And uh, I think a lot of people put their own interpretation to what it means. Mm. 
So um, how do you feel um, etiquette has changed? Because, I mean, obviously it's got a long history and, and it used to be way more formal and it was all about different uh, classes of people and, and that type of thing. But in the modern world, in modern business situations and, and day-to-day life, etiquette's changed and, you know, you, you kind of uh, talked about a little bit about uh, being stodgy and, and, and these rules and, and who needs them type of thing. But really you do. It, it enables you to... Uh, seem like a, a switched-on person, a person that's more trustworthy, uh, and a person that would be nice to hang out with compared to somebody that's more self-involved. Exactly. Uh, well, you you just hit on an important point. It's thinking about the other person. Uh, that's really what it's all about. And etiquette has to change, or it won't be relevant. If if uh, if you're still if we're still trying to abide by the rules of etiquette that were were popular in the early part of the 20th century, then they're, they're not going to have any meaning and people aren't going to, uh, aren't going to grasp those, those rules at all, and they shouldn't. And so it changes with the times and changes with people's needs. Most things, most rules start off as, as function, and then later on they become form. And, and we want to keep etiquette being the function and not just the form. So it really needs to be something that is changing. Let me give you an example. It's always going to be in style to say thank you. It's always going to be a, a rule that you're gracious and you show appreciation for, for what people do. But I hear people who get all upset if somebody sends them a thank you via email. I don't have a problem with that. I think that if it's if it's immediate, if it's enthusiastic, if it's very pertinent to what the person did, particularly in the business world, in a professional situation, and particularly when you're dealing with someone like, for example, the millennials that are very tech savvy, then saying thank you via email is perfectly okay. Certainly there are times when we all like a handwritten note, but everybody's busy and, and sometimes if you wait for the opportunity to write a handwritten note, it won't happen. And, and uh, uh, it's, an email is certainly better than never. And, uh, and even, even a text, if it's something uh, really simple like, thank you for supporting me in the meeting today, then that is perfectly acceptable to send as a text. Well, you know, you... you- made a very salient point right there say thank you for help being helpful in the meeting instead of just saying thanks because you don't tell you're, you're being lazy number one and you're not really communicating anything it's like thanks well thanks for what was it because i gave you the coffee or what now you've kind of why you know you're trying to help the person understand why you are you're, you're you have gratitude towards them it's like thanks for being uh helpful at the meeting or thanks for getting that uh, i like to say thanks for responding quickly because i i'm constantly wanting people to respond as quickly as possible um so yeah, and and then going all the way down to the worst version of it is you don't even word, spell out the word thank is t uh, t h x exactly yes. thanks it's like right yeah. oh, uh, thanks, well yeah. and the more specific you are the 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 more impact it has and the more sincere it it becomes. I also like uh, to encourage people to do follow up thank yous. You know, if someone 
for example, uh, gave you something, a, a gift certificate to a restaurant, uh, circle back. Not only would you thank them then, but circle back around after you've eaten there and said, oh, I had the most wonderful meal. I had this, this, and this, and uh, just appreciated uh, what you did for me by giving me that gift, gift certificate or that gift card. So following up with a thank you, here's how I used it, here's how much I appreciated it, just really makes people feel good. Yeah, I mean, and that goes all the way back to when you were a kid and you got all these presents and uh, your mom and dad would say, hey, don't forget to say thanks to your aunt. And you're, the, you're as a child, because you, you're so self-centered, it's like, why would I want to do that? Like, wh- what do I get out of that? And it's, it's no, it's like, this is etiquette 101. You have to say thank you when people are being gracious and kind to you and you should continue to do that for your whole life. Absolutely. I used to hate that. Hated writing thank you notes. In fact, I almost dreaded the holidays because I was going to have to have to write all these thank you notes. But uh, my mother always made sure that I did. And and being gracious doesn't take a lot of effort, but it's critical. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the day where people wrote way more letters and they they were more communicative because that's the only way you could communicate. There was no phone. There was obviously no texting. And and letters took a long time to travel. So letters tended to be almost like novellas. Uh, These are all the things going on in my life. And I remember when I was in Asia, I, I was so busy. And what I did is I just put out a magazine or a newsletter about what I'd been doing those last six months and sent that to like all my friends just to keep them uh, abreast of what was going on. And some of them appreciated them and, and some didn't. It doesn't matter. At least I was trying to communicate. It's like, look, at these are all the things I've done the last six months. Um, what have you been up to type of thing? I bet they loved it. And and as you said, uh, back in, in, in the day when people wrote letters almost in that was the way we communicated uh, receiving letters were big events you know people really were excited about the opportunity to to get that in the mail i want to talk a little bit about emojis because i love them uh because it helps me uh, define the mood that I'm in or if I'm cracking a joke I'm being sarcastic because it's so difficult. People can take emails in such the wrong way and, and, and start, you know, basically waste a bunch of time trying to unravel a situation that you didn't even think you were getting involved in. I think emojis are fine. I'm, I like them also. Now, where, where, where are emo- emojis uh, less appropriate? Well, it, it, I know I keep keep coming back to this topic, but it, it has so much to do with your relationship with the receiver. Uh, it, I believe that good communication in many cases hinges on timing and relationships. And if you're aware of both of those, you're probably going to do a, a good job of communicating. And if it's someone who may not even know what an emoji is, uh, you probably would want to hold off on that. But with with co-workers and colleagues uh, whom you know well, uh, I think they, they really do help in a, in a written message to let people know what's really going on. I like the scream, you know, <laughs> I, I use the scream emoji a lot from that, from that painting. So I think that one's a lot of fun. And, and, and there, uh, it's great when you send someone a birthday wish and can send cake and balloons and hearts and all that sort of thing. So uh, I think they're a great way to celebrate or to, uh, to acknowledge how you're feeling about something. Now, you know, we've been talking about a lot about a remote communication, telephone, texting, emails and stuff like that. What about etiquette in the office where you're physically in a space, especially if you have an office that's one of these open plan? Exactly. 
Exactly. Well, the research shows that the, the two things that, that irritate people the most in an open office are noises and smells. And usually the smells are either emanating from too much perfume or after aftershave or it's coming out of the break room. You know, someone is, is, is uh, warming the uh, last night's fish or something in the, in the microwave. <laughs> And, and so we have to be aware of that and, and, and realize that uh, we need to be very careful about the kinds of things that if we're going to be cooking in the office, uh, what might not be pleasant to someone else. But the noise has to do often with just the, the level of one's voice. Uh, when you're in a cubicle right next door to someone and they're laughing loudly or they're talking extremely loudly and you're working on something, you're working on a deadline, uh, that can be extremely distracting. My opinion about it is certainly the employees have a certain obligation to be cognitive of each other and to be sensitive to each other's needs. But I also think that companies should show should have some responsibility. If it chooses to have this open office, there need to be some quiet spaces that are accessible. If people need to work quietly, if they need to have a one-on-one very private conversation with someone, there, there needs to be plenty of places in that organization where someone can go to do that. Uh, and not have to always be worrying about is someone across the cubicle listening to what I have to say. Yeah, there's a lot of things that can go on often in an office that are very uh, disturbing. Uh, I remember working in an office and I would have my door closed because I was working. And then I would have the door open if I didn't mind people dropping by to say hi because there seems to be a real habit of people just wandering around the office saying hi to people and disturbing them. So, you know, what is the etiquette for open and closed doors? Because I actually got called out on that by um, my supervisors and saying, Bob, you, you're you're not being very social. You've got your door closed all the time. So, well, yeah, you keep on giving me lots of work. So if I wasn't busy, I'd be happy to chat with people. I'm just really busy. And uh, I, I just had to compromise and uh, keep my door open and be bothered all the time. Well, you know, I, I saw a very creative way of dealing with that once. A company that was a, that's a client of mine uh, had little, little uh, uh, stoplight circles put in a place where you could put them by the door. And red meant don't come in, green meant come in, and yellow meant you can come in for a minute, but I'm busy. Uh, so th- that worked for that particular company without having to offend people. But I don't think anything is wrong with needing your privacy in your space when you're working on something. Uh, perhaps you just put a little note on the door that says, I'll be available in 30 minutes, but right now I'm in the middle of something. Uh, I, I think you have a perfect right to to ask people to wait until you finish something uh, and then you can give them your attention rather than than having them just pop in and and you may or may not show your irritation by the fact that you've been interrupted if if I were coming into someone's office I would much rather that person say Beverly you know I'm, I'm right in the middle of something I need about 20 minutes to finish it can we get together I'd love to talk to you can you come back then rather than have me come in and then be aware of the fact the person was half listening, really looking at the computer. I wasn't getting full attention. And so I would feel somehow more disrespected if that happened. So I think to be honest with people about those things, it it really can be better in the long run. You know, it seems to me the more we talk, 
etiquette is more about uh, high quality communication so the person on the other side of the conversation knows what to do and doesn't feel uncomfortable. Exactly. Exactly. It's all about figuring out what that other person needs. Now, what about body language? I mean, it, that's such a critical thing. And, and I've, it's, everybody's aware of it now. It used to be like this mystery thing. And then it, it's used on TV all the time and it's brought up. Um, do you think it's still as relevant? Has it changed with the, with the more millennials out there? Or do you think body language is something that's so deep inside us that it's subconscious? Oh, it's instinctive. It, it, it's a, a, Dr. Albert Morabian, uh, many years ago, is, was the person at UCLA who, who figured out that in a live face-to-face conversation that words are 10% or less and your voice is 35% and your body language, everything else is about 55% of the message. And we don't even realize that we are sending those nonverbal signals. They're just part of who we are. So unless we are consciously trying to minimize our body language, people can tell a lot about us from what's going on with our eye contact, our lack thereof, our posture, our the way we, we sit in a meeting, for example. Are, are, you, are you all slouched down in your chair uh, looking at your lap, which of course is where your phone is located? <laughs> uh, are you gazing out the window? Are you making eye contact with a speaker? It can send all kinds of signals about how you feel about either the topic, the speaker, the meeting, or all three of those. Hmm. Now, you mentioned um, CQ. Uh, which is a, a nice two-letter acronym. I'll let you explain that in a second. But how important is CQ? Well, it's it gets it, sometimes it's been called culture cultural quotient. I was using it as courtesy quotient in my book, and the whole idea is just uh, sometimes we call that social savvy. Sometimes we call it street smarts. But it's just a matter of of knowing the appropriate way to respond to something. It's. I have this little quiz in the beginning of the book to to test your CQ, but that really is just to get people thinking about: uh, Are they naturally courteous, and do they instinctively know the right way to behave in a variety of situations? And there may be more than one answer, and the situation may dictate how you how you behave. Um, I love the little section on cursing. Uh, because it, it, it's become, you know, cursing has changed into exclamation points. And, you know, there's some people that just, they can't uh, make a sentence without cursing. Do you think it, it, there's definitely a, a decline in, in the use of a larger vocabulary compared to uh, like 30 years ago? Probably. Uh, I, I'm not sure how much as a society we read now. I mean, we read Twitter and we read text, but how much we really read good writing that expands our minds and expands our vocabularies. And a lot of times, uh, and, and look, we all curse. We all have those moments where no other word quite fits like the, the one that we want to use. Uh, but it, it really does lower the quality of our, of our communication without question. Sometimes it can be very effective, but other times it just, it's, it's a lazy way to talk. And and what I tell people is you, again, always thinking about who's on the other end of the conversation. Uh, is it going to 
make that person shut down everything else you have to say because he or she is so offended by the way you're presenting your ideas. And you just don't want to take that chance. Some people curse. I think I give an example in the book about uh, a person in a very high-profile head of a company here in Atlanta uh, would used to uh, get on the elevator with some of his minions and other people would be on the elevator and he would just launch into this 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 horrible language because people were trapped and he was the boss and there wasn't anything they could do about it. And it was almost a way to show power that I'm going to make you listen to the way I talk, whether you like it or not, which is, is, a, is, is very unfortunate. Yeah, because in the in the long run, it, it hurts that person. I mean, it, people lose respect for them. They may, well, I mean, he's a boss, but he's a bit of a jerk. Exactly. And, and they remember uh, this person who was telling me about it hadn't worked for that company in five plus years. And she was still talking about the experience of getting on the elevator with this man. Now, you know, we're, we're on the subject of men and women. There, there's obviously inherent differences between men and women. But as far as etiquette is concerned, do you think that etiquette can be empowering to a woman? It can, as long as they really understand what's what's going on. I have women from time to time who will challenge me about this whole focus on courtesy and say, uh, if you're nice, people will run over you. And obviously, I think courtesy is more than just being nice. And what I try to tell people is that you can be courteous and confident at the same time. Uh, you don't, just because you you do something for someone or let someone go ahead of you or or open the door for someone or give someone a better seat at at a at a meeting perhaps uh, you're the one in charge you're the one in control who's doing that and so you can be very confident confident and very gracious because you're allowing that to happen to them so i think it can really be a competitive advantage because we are living in a rather rude world and the more that we can realize that we can stand out in the crowd in a very positive way by just knowing how to behave appropriately and being comfortable enough in our own skin that we don't mind letting someone step ahead of us or uh, have the better seat or, or whatever it might be uh, because we, we are happy with who we are and we feel good about uh, what's going on in our own, in our own situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's. I think it shows incredible confidence that you can go in and, especially as a woman, and open a door for a man and say, "Hey, after you." And now, if the guy has any etiquette, he'll say, "Oh, no, 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 after you." And then you can have this fun little thing, and it's a great way to get to know somebody. Exactly. Um, what about etiquette at meetings? Because that's tricky. If um, if you're speaking and then somebody starts, you know, talking or making comments when you're speaking, that's incredibly disrespectful for you trying to make your point across and it can anger people. What's the best way to handle meetings or manage meetings with uh, etiquette in mind? Well, it's, uh, there's certainly, there are a lot of really great books on how do you run a meeting efficiently and effectively. We've known about what makes a good meeting for the last 25 or 30 years, but we don't, just don't do it. We fall back into our old tricks or our old traps of letting people take us off the topic, not sticking with the agenda, letting somebody dominate the conversation. We all know we shouldn't do that, and yet in a lot of cases that happens. But, but 
it's one of the things as a meeting manager you can always do is to set expectations. I encourage people who meet regularly with each other to create meeting ground rules on which they all agree. And if you everybody knows the ground rules, for example, uh, you don't uh, you don't interrupt Bob when he's speaking, or you don't interrupt Mary when she's doing a presentation. Uh, if everybody plays by the same rules, then the meeting can run very well. If somebody interrupts you uh, or or starts talking over you, it's it's perfectly appropriate just to say, "Just let me finish, please. I'm almost done with my point," uh, because that's a courteous way to keep the person from interrupting, but it also reminds everybody else that that other person was being rude. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also, it goes back to, once again, great communication, letting people know where the boundaries are so they can be aware of those boundaries and say, okay, in Bob's meetings, um, we shouldn't talk over each other. Now, then it's my responsibility to also say that at the beginning of the meeting, and if you have a question, please write it down during the conversation, and then at the end of speaking, then you should say, okay, are there any questions based on what I just said or do we need to expand on this at all? And then give the opportunity for all those people that are waiting to make a comment uh, to have a chance to do it. And if you do that two or three times, then I think a lot of times people jump in and interrupt because they think that they're never going to get a chance or they're going to forget the question or, or those type of things. Exactly. That's a great technique that you just described. And, and so much has to do with setting expectations or boundaries, as you mentioned. Once everybody knows the rules of the game, then when then when you as the meeting leader will call somebody on it. Remember, we decided we weren't going to interrupt each other. If everybody plays by the same rules, then, then the meeting will run smoothly. Unfortunately, what often happens, though, in situations like that is office politics get involved. Oh, I can tell Beverly not to interrupt Bob, but I can't tell Mr. Jones, who is the vice president, if he interrupts. And it doesn't take people long to see that the playing field is not level, and then that creates its own set of problems. Well, I mean, if you're going to have an etiquette um, value style office, it's up to the senior management, C-suite, and then down to show that this is the way I want my company to be run and I expect all my senior management to behave that way and if they don't they're going to hear from me and all the way down because then um, the guy that's delivering the final product or your salespeople are also going to have that on mind and they're going to be courteous to the clients and they're going to have etiquette top of mind and your company will look more professional and you'll have a stronger brand so it's a win-win. Absolutely, but you make such a great point in that it, it really has to come from or be, in re, be reinforced by the leadership. Uh, if, if you can talk about etiquette with the rank and file, but if they see consistent rudeness and discourtesy from the people who run the place, it's going to be very difficult for them to maintain a, a courteous environment. Well, you know, management through example, I, I remember chatting with somebody about a year ago and they were saying, you know, there was this amazing CEO, they were hanging out and he was giving a tour of the plant. And if the CEO saw something that was amiss, a tool that was out of place or some garbage in the floor, he would, he would say, excuse me for a second. And he would go fix the problem himself and then continue on, but not mention it to the worker. And 
I think that is the thing is if you uh, use a lot of etiquette or, or you're conscious of etiquette and then you're constantly telling people, say, you know, wasn't I courteous by doing that? That's not the way to teach people to be courteous. Right. And particularly when people see upper management who aren't, they're not afraid to get their hands dirty. They're not afraid to pick up the garbage. They're not afraid to pitch in when, when time is short. Uh, they'll follow those people, those leaders anywhere if they see that kind of example. And it's a, it's easy to do and it pays huge dividends. Oh, absolutely. And I think the same thing with your book, with, with etiquette. I mean, if you have a company that's uh, steeped in the rules and regulations and everybody knows it and everybody's comfortable with it. When guests come uh, and potential clients come to the company, come to the office, they're treated uh, with some respect. And for people coming out of a toxic environment into your nice, etiquette-driven environment, it's very refreshing and it makes them want to work with you. Of course, yes. And and it also, uh, that environment is going to, and you touched on this a minute ago, that if you treat your employees courteously and they treat each other courteously, they will treat their customers the same way. Now, what about a situation, uh, you know, I've traveled a lot and, and culture shock and, and uh, being conscious of other uh, societies and what they considered consider normal, like uh, if you're in Saudi Arabia, if you have a wonderful meal, you should burp to show that you uh, experienced a wonderful uh, meal. And then if you're in Asia, you should slurp your noodles. Um, but then back in North America, you can't be burping and slurping noodles. <laughs> so that there are, there are new etiquettes for being in different countries. Do you think it's up to the person that's going abroad to study up a little bit so they don't look like a buffoon? Absolutely. It's, it's just as though when, when you go to someone else's country, it's like going to their home. And they're, they're the hosts and they're proud of where they live and the environment and, and their traditions. They're not going to expect you to be perfect. They're not going to, they understand that you're coming from another culture, but you should know some basics. You should, uh, there, and there are lots of good books out there now that you can read about doing business in just about any country in the world and, and, and just knowing things like greetings and, and gift giving and uh, uh, how you behave, like you just pointed out, at a meal. Just knowing those basics can be so important. It shows people that you respect their culture. But the other thing that I've found is that ask a lot of questions People enjoy talking about their homeland. People enjoy explaining things about their culture. And so have some questions that you can ask them about uh, how something might be different from the way someone does it in, in North America, for example. And, and usually people are delighted to talk about that. And then they'll want to know some things uh, back the other way about, about your own culture. So it's a, a great way to connect. And, and, and people really appreciate the interest. It's, it's very important, though, to show respect for the place where you are where you're going. You don't go to some place like Buffalo, New York, for example, and complain because it's cold. <laughs> you know, you don't, I, I remember once I was doing a workshop in, in Reno, Nevada, and I happened to ask the man at the, at the front desk of the hotel before I went to my, my appointment, uh, what was the correct pronunciation of 
of the state. And he said, well, most people call it Nevada, but it's really Nevada. So when I got to the workshop, I said, I've never been to Nevada before, and I'm, everyone's been so gracious. I'm really enjoying my stay. At the first break, this woman came up to me, and she said, I want you to know how much I appreciate the fact that you pronounce the name of our state correctly. People from the East never do. And she said, if you had called it Nevada, I probably would not have listened to another thing you had said. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. And, and I think that's the thing that's wonderful about this book is it really shows you, I mean, it's not only a guidebook, it gives you some pretty deep uh, understandings of the value that you're bringing to an organization or, or to your life. Well, you mentioned earlier about personal brand uh, and, and uh, your personal brand, like it or not, uh, reflects on the corporate brand. If you work for an organization, people, you may be the only representative of that company that a particular client or customer ever sees. And it's so, so important for you to realize that, that you and your corporate brand, that your brand and your corporate brand are connected. And you can either say great things about your company with the way you conduct yourself or not so great things. Mm. Well, you know, speaking of not so great things, there's sometimes that you have to bring bad news or something's happened, like you have made a huge fiasco and you have to apologize. How do people, or what's the best way to approach those type of situations? Well, two different things. One is uh, the the apology. It, people need to know how to apologize when they make a mistake. They need, need to admit their mistakes. And it needs to be a true apology. You hear these apologies on, on the news all the time where I call them faux apologies because the person isn't really apologizing for what he did. He or she is saying, I'm sorry you were upset or I'm sorry you were offended. So it puts all the blame on the on the person who, who to whom you're directing the apology. An apology should be specific. I'm sorry that I, uh, that I, 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 filled your order incorrectly. I'm sorry that your delivery was late and I know that it inconvenienced you. Very few people won't accept a sincere apology. In most cases, they will absolutely appreciate and accept it. And then you can move on to other things. And if there's something you can do to make things better, if, if maybe you weren't able to do one thing but could do something else, by all means do so. But a, a sincere and quick apology really does make you actually makes you look good. It doesn't, it doesn't denigrate you in any way. Now, on the other hand, you ask about how do you deliver bad news? And obviously, if you're in management or if you deal with customers, there are always times that you have to tell people things that they'd rather not hear. And when I talk about bad news in, in that respect, I'm not talking about tragedy. I'm not talking about something where you've got to tell someone that, that a loved one has been in a terrible accident or something like that. The only thing you can do in that case is just tell them. But I'm talking about what I like to call unwelcome information. You can't take your vacation next week or uh, we're unfortunately uh, the we're not going to be able to use your company as our vendor, those kinds of things. And I am not a fan of the bad news sandwich. And what I call the bad news sandwich is when a lot of people are taught to do this, that you start off by saying something really good and then you tell the bad news and then you end up with something really good. And what happens is the, the bad news gets lost in all the 
all the, the flowery remarks. To me, it's better if you have to tell someone something unpleasant or that he doesn't want to hear, it's better to start with something neutral. Like, for example, Nelson, you asked yesterday if you were going to be able to take off week after next to go visit your family in Portland. And so you start with a neutral statement. And then you can tell Nelson that a major project has to be finished and you're not going to be able to grant that. Then if you can give an alternative later on, that's fine. And then end up with something that's positive and builds morale. You can always say the good things at the end because you want to you want to encourage that relationship to continue to grow in a positive way. And if you learn to deliver unwelcome information effectively, if you learn how to have these rather tough conversations in a in a respectful and good way, you can actually strengthen relationships in the long run. What about um, when you're trying to communicate to somebody that they, they've got a problem or, or they need to change their habits and they just don't quite get it, you're, you're being nice about it and, and you've tried two or three times, um, when is it polite to start getting a little bit blunter with those people? Well, perhaps you should have been a little blunter to begin with because, <laughs> you know, if as I said, if you start off with the bad news sandwich, you know, oh, Bob, you're just a great employee. We just love having you around. And then you try to tell Bob something that he needs to do a little differently. Bob's still listening to all the accolades that came first. Uh, what, what I always encourage people to do, and listen, I'm not perfect at this. I don't think, I think we all fumble a little bit when we have to deal with these kinds of issues. But it's it's a good idea to be descriptive rather than evaluative. That that you describe whatever the behavior is that's not satisfactory. Uh, you would say something like, Mary, uh, we have staff meeting every Monday morning, and for the last four Mondays, you've been more than 15 minutes late to the staff meeting. Now, that is, that's descriptive. You're just describing what you've observed and what's happening. A judgmental would be, Mary, you obviously don't think our staff meetings are very important, or you probably need to get a new alarm clock. Something along those lines would be what we call judgmental feedback rather than just descriptive feedback. You don't want to evaluate the situation. You want to describe the situation. And another, uh, another way that you can build on that after you've described it is let people know how their behavior is affecting other people how it's making you feel, perhaps as their manager or their colleague, and then the long, long-range long consequences of how it's affecting the team, how it's affecting the company, and so forth. And, and if you have some suggestions for how that person might improve, you can always, you can always share that. But it, as long as you're describing a behavior, you can be fairly direct because you're not insulting someone. You're just telling someone exactly what you observed and what they've been doing or not doing. Mm. Yeah, they may not be aware of it. True. Now, you know, you bring up a good point that there's some people that really have a hard time with time, my daughter being one of them. And, you know, you can tell them a million times, hey, we're leaving at 9 and at 9.10 they're ready. Is it okay to manage those people by giving them a different deadline than everybody else? Well, you know, you, you probably could do that initially, but they'll probably figure it out. <laughs> uh, 
they'll say, well, yes, he told me we were leaving at at 10 of 9, but I know they're Everybody else isn't going to be there till till nine, and I can do my usual thing. Uh, Sometimes it's if if someone is habitually late. Uh, again, you can certainly talk about it, but uh, to the person and explain the consequences and all that. But as long as you wait for them, as long as the meeting waits for them, as long as you wait for the person who's running late. Uh, they won't see any reason not to do it. Yeah, there's no consequence. That's right. It's like with meetings. You know, you've got the people who are typically late for a meeting. And if you, as the manager or the meeting leader, if you start the meeting on time and when that person shows up late, you continue the meeting, you don't stop and bring them up to speed, uh, and you, you move forward if they had a part on the agenda that they missed, then if you have time at the end, maybe they can share their ideas. But as long as they know that the meeting is going to start on time, you're not going to wait for him or her, and you're going to move right along. You're not going to stop the meeting to bring them up to speed. They'll figure out a way to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about consequence. If you're not going to show the person there's a consequence, why should they change? Exactly. As long as you're the one always assuming the consequences, you're the one who waits for them, then there's there's no reason for them to change. Yeah. And that, and that's, you know, that's a, a negative type of etiquette where you're being polite. Well, let's just wait for Joe because he's always, already, always going to be late and everybody sits around wasting their time. A lot of people don't understand if there's, let's say, five people in that meeting for every five minutes that they're not doing something that is Five times five minutes, not five minutes that has been wasted. Exactly. I, I heard somewhere, I love this term, that a meeting is a phantom investment for a company. That you, you would, a company that would not think of, of uh, wasting its, uh, its, its, its resources, its paper or its products or uh, abusing its vehicles or, or not taking care of its computers – Think uh, they'll think nothing uh, about tying up people in a, in a meeting for four or five hours when they could have done it in two, and and if you figured up everyone's salary and figured how much the meeting actually cost, it would be scary. And and the way I always feel about it, particularly going back to this matter of meetings, is that if if I've got five people there and I wait for the one person who's late. That's disrespectful to the five people who got there on time. So we ought to the, the meeting should start on time, or the uh, the the workshop should start on time, or the class, or whatever it is, uh, out of respect for the people who are there when they were supposed to be. Now, um, you know, when you were putting this book together, for you, what was your aha moment where, you know, you obviously know a lot of this stuff, you're, you're very etiquette-driven, but where was something that really, um, you really got down to your core? Well, it actually, probably what, what inspired me to, to do this, I had written a few articles for a local magazine on, on just appropriate behavior, and so I had several articles that I thought might become a book at some point. But uh, there was a a study done at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, back in the late 90s on rudeness in the workplace. And that was a real aha moment for me because it was amazing that these people surveyed revealed that of all the people surveyed, 
12% of the people surveyed, I think it was close to 2,000 people, 12% had actually quit a job because of the, the, the toxic environment, the rude environment in which they had to deal with it. Uh, another 22% had not quit their job because they didn't feel that economically they could do that, but they were completely disengaged and they did not give the effort that they needed to get or they or give or that they could have given to the company and and then it just went on uh, even there were some experiences where uh, they ask you have you ever been yelled at in the office and there was a percentage that said yes and another percentage said did you had you ever done the yelling and unfortunately there were people who had done that and all the way down I think two percent had even uh, been struck or had struck someone in the in in a work situation and I thought my goodness this is awful and and not getting much better and not getting any better and I got to thinking about how did we how did we become so discourteous as a as a society and I'm not talking about artificial courtesy I mean genuine regard for each other I think a lot of it is the the anonymity that's created by the big cities you know you're at the airport you're rushing to catch a plane and and you you, you bump into someone and and just keep going because you're never going to see that person again so I think some of that has to do with our our lack of, of really being interested in in being courteous to each other but if there was an aha moment I don't think I had thought that much about it before then but that was probably it, is that that study was very revealing. Hmm. The Etiquette's Edge, Modern Manners for Business Success. I've had Beverly Langford with me today. Beverly, thanks for being on the show. It's been a pleasure, Bob. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please share this interview if you think your network of business friends would benefit from it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite Android app. Also, don't forget to check out www.businessbooktalk.com for more business book interviews.